Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. everybody to Nightlight. I want to thank Ked Quiethawk for that amazing intro. You can find him at nativestorytellers.com and it's definitely a website you want to check out. Um, Native storytellers are another part of our ancient history that has sort of fallen through the cracks and it's important that people keep it alive and he and his wife do a beautiful job of it. Mark has put together an amazing show for tonight. A little on the strange side, but, but then that's what makes it that much more exciting. Um, he, he has two great guests, both of whom have showed up, so it's going to be an amazing talk, an amazing discussion, and so get your pencils and papers out, take notes, and get ready to be amazed at the kind of show he has got in store for you. Mark, it's all yours. Everybody's here. Hey, all right, yeah. How, how's your day going, Barbara? So far, so good. So far, so right. good. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to, to keep everything together for the next couple of hours, and then I am going to call it a day. Okay. Well, uh, you know, the three of us are going to really inform you as well as the listeners with uh, some great information. So uh, just kick back and enjoy and just do the uh, production stuff. We'll take care of the rest of it, and yeah, you know, last night we uh, heard all about the talking mongoose, and tonight we're going to hear a little bit about a talking raven, and you know, as uh, winter seems to be crawling into his sepulcher, and we start thinking about summer vacation plans. Um, <laughs> you know, we've got a great. A place to visit while you're on I-95 or I-64. Uh, you can stop at the Poe Museum in Richmond, Virginia. So uh, we're going to hear about how unique this museum is from its curator, Chris Sumner, who is also the author of the fascinating and recently published The Poe Shrine. Really cool book. So. Uh, and we'll we'll be getting into that. Uh, 
you know, throughout the evening as well. Uh, we are joined by <clears throat> our super special co-host for her 29th birthday. Uh, Venny Koshis is the author of Cult Child, one of the 21st century's uh, premier autobiographies, and she has used her unfortunate experiences uh, growing up in a cult to be a leader in child abuse prevention and awareness and making trauma victims aware of healing. So uh, welcome, Chris and Venny. How are you two doing tonight? Good, good. Good to be here. Hello, hello. Hi, Chris. Hi, how are you? I'm good. Hey, Mark. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, well, you're – we have two – co-scholars with us tonight, and you know, um, I'm sure that our listeners are aware that, you know, who, who Poe, Edgar Allan Poe uh, is, and he's a celebrated author, and he lived in, in depressing circumstances. But, you know, let's explore... You know, a little bit more deeply, you know, the uh, connection between creativity and environmental factors. Uh, maybe there were some strategies that, you know, today's strategies that could have been used to help uh, Poe about 170 years ago. You know, and maybe he's doing some things, uh, you know, some of the strategies, uh, uh you know, correctly as he, you know, tried to cope with uh, some really crushing, you know, lifetime blows, uh, you know, maybe uh, after tonight's discussion, you know, we'll be able to uh, pick you know, pick out, uh, identify symptoms of trauma and you know, be more effective in helping others to heal. So, um Chris, maybe we could review some of these early traumatic events that Poe encountered and uh, what were some of the effects on Poe throughout his short life? Well, Poe lost his father and mother very early. His father seems to abandon the family. Never heard from him again. That's by the time Poe's two. And then a month before Edgar's third birthday, his mother died of tuberculosis, and Edgar could have very well been there for the event. We just don't know. It's years later he wrote that you know, he had neither father nor mother because they both died so early, and he said the want of paternal affection was the greatest of his trials. Now, he did have foster parents. He had Francis Allen, a local Richmond lady who took care of him, but Really, in that relationship, the dominant partner was her husband, John Allen, who sort of never warmed up to Edgar quite that much. In his letters, he complains that Edgar's sulky and ill-tempered, doesn't show a spark of gratitude for the charity I've shown him all these years. And Mr. Allen seems used Poe's status as a foster child almost as a weapon. He was always reminding Poe that he was only there out of charity, that he wasn't really an Allen. He could be cut off without an ascent, that he could lose everything if he angered Allen. So that's got to work on Edgar's mind early on that he's 
he's living with his family. He's not really part of it. In one of his letters, he complained that Alan treats the servants better than he treats him. Of course, the wife, Frances Allen, just adored Edgar, but she always had health problems, and she passed away when Edgar was just 20 years old. So he didn't get to see her. He made it back to Richmond a day late for her funeral. And then, to top that off, his first love was called Jane Stith Craig Stannard. He called her the first purely ideal love of my soul. And he met her when he was about 14. His poem, To Helen, is dedicated to her. He thought she was Helen of Troy, most beautiful woman ever lived. But then, just a few months after he met her, she went insane and died. So another person, he's very close to him, like a mother figure to him, she dies. So especially in his early teens and these childhood years, he, he lost a lot of those who were really close to him. So maybe he could have had abandonment issues. There was one biographer, Kenneth Silverman, who thought that Poe's whole life was shaped by that early loss of his mother, that he really never came to terms with that. But mm-hmm. on top of that, when he was 18 years old, he he found his girlfriend's father had intercepted Poe's love letters to her, broken off their engagement, and Poe ran away from home and was never really welcome at home with the Allens anymore. And he was estranged from him after his foster mother died. He never really recovered his relationship with Mr. Allen much after that. Okay. He didn't live that long. He died when he was just 40. And you know, Chris, when um, you know, you know, you gave us a great background, more in-depth background than you know, just what's you know, in an introduction to uh, you know, a high school uh, collection of poems or short stories that you know, probably most of us read, but. Um, yeah, you know, to make uh, his biography more muddled. Uh, you know, you have this sample in your book, the uh, post shrine, where he, he uh, on page eighty-eight, it was a uh, two. It was a letter. Uh, that was uh, ripped in half, and uh, one one part is in um, uh, you know Boston uh, Museum, and what you have the other half. Yeah, that but would be it, it, Rufus Griswold. Uh, okay, yeah, and yeah, you know, it it just seems like, and you know, maybe Venny could uh, verify, but there's seems to have been a lot of secrecy and shame because, you know, you do draw our attention to uh, parts of that letter where he uh, changed his birthday and said he was from a uh, a prominent family in Baltimore. (laughs) Was some of this uh, conflict with uh, John Allen – somehow uh, working its way into uh, explaining his heritage? Yeah, Poe was never really part of the Allen family, and his mother 
had been an actress. That was really scandalous back then. They thought actresses as not much more than prostitutes. And that was reflected on Poe when he was growing up, that when his foster father called him a devil actress's son, and his classmates would make fun of him for being an actress's son. And even after he died, there was still that prejudice against him for being the son of an actress. So he maybe wanted to play up the angle that his family was one of the oldest and most respected from Baltimore, but really his grandfather was an Irish immigrant, so they weren't one of the oldest families of Baltimore. And by the time Poe did move to Baltimore, his relatives there, his grandmother was living in poverty with his aunt and his cousins. So he maybe wanted to create a new life for himself. He wanted to be the American Byron. He wanted to be the Lord Byron of America and really he played up the angle. He even invented a whole story about him going off to Greece to fight in the Greek Wars of Independence like Byron had. Okay. And, and uh, Benny, uh, yeah, you, you, I'm just you fascinated. Uh, <laughs> yeah, j- j- jump in with a uh, question oh. and or comment. Oh, sure. Yes, yes. First of all, Chris, amazing book. Like, truly, oh, like, yes. you went so raw and and deep into his personal life but you know I'm a trauma survivor and so the very first line of the book just grabbed me where it just says you know he was two years old so I basically did like inner child work for Poe okay and I took myself like to that little boy he's about two and a half three about the age that I went into a cult and it seemed that he was probably in a seen and not heard child environment. And he's watching people go in and out of his mother's room. You know, so I think about that slow decline at that young, very formidable age, that it was a process of not just like one day mom's here and then mom's gone. He actually experienced and probably felt very isolated as his mother died and it's very sad and really, really like apparent in his work. He has major abandonment issues. And I so relate to that because that's where, and you mentioned that earlier about that being the cusp of where everything broke and his loneliness and angst and loss of hope, I think happened right at that moment. And then it just kept happening over and over again throughout his life. First his first love, then his foster mother, mm-hmm. then his wife. It seems like every time he got close to somebody, they were pulled away from him. So yeah. Yeah, I really know that feeling. That definitely, like, um, you know that portrait of his, of his wife. Um, it was just very interesting, Mark, you hit on this about the shame. Um, it was like as if his family was ashamed of him and very much cared what others thought. That would very much mirror, say, my mother's personality where there was, you know, coolness and private and an air of elegance and hope of elegance or, you know, even while living in poverty. It's all very convoluted. Um, and so I really got to go into a psychological um, aspect. I love that you hit that in your book. That is, I have so many tabs, it's not even funny, of the pieces that you show where he really, I mean, yes, it is such a pattern um, 
in survivors' lives, in lives of poets and writers who have suffered angst and pain, these patterns of broken relationships, fear of abandonment, all of that, that I really kind of had this moment of, yeah, being that little boy, you know, I'm asking those questions that we'll never know. Like, did he get to go in the room and sit with his mother? You know, was the bond ever even there? All of those things definitely, you know, go through my mind about him as, as a little boy. Feeling was losing his mom. Even at that early age, he just seemed to be isolated. If you remember one of his yeah. most famous poems from Childhood's Hour, I've not been as others were, I've not seen as others saw. I cannot bring my passions from a common spring. So even for those early days, he's writing about how he's alone. And there's mm. a great early poem called The Lake. In the spring of youth, it was my lot to haunt of the wild earth a spot. The witch of I could not love the less, so lovely was the loneliness. And he's writing about the Lake Drummond of a great dismal swamp here in Virginia. And how that's an Eden to him, a place he can escape and be alone and be isolated and maybe there was that feeling from early on he just didn't belong anywhere yeah so not only too I was noticing like was he abandoned but he was also shunned so while his father didn't care about him wouldn't help him after college or any of that nobody wanted him to take pictures I don't think he wanted to take pictures I don't think he liked the way he looked like all of those things as an abuse survivor I can totally relate with but just like his family not wanting the portrait of his wife to be reproduced or you know the way they were with him um and so private and so caring about what others thought it just seemed to pile on this pressure of like having to live up to these expectations he could never ever live up to. But then he found some way to channel it through his art. And he even then, he didn't seem to fit in. When he was in New York, he didn't fit in with the New York literary scene. And mm-hmm. He definitely didn't fit in with the Boston scene. He, he feuded with a lot of the Boston writers and the transcendentalist and Longfellow. He kept attacking Longfellow. So he always felt himself this outsider, but then he made himself an outsider by attacking those people who, I guess, maybe had the life he wanted. He wanted to be the Longfellow, the respected Harvard professor that everybody looked up to. And here Poe was, working at the magazine, struggling, watching everything around him gradually waste away and disappear. Yeah. And maybe he was right. I mean, maybe he was that brilliant mind that is thrown by the wayside while these, you know, not not to not give credence to other great poets, but, you know, should not be recognized until after your death. I mean, in a way, there's kind of almost an actualization and a foreseeance of that, you know. Yeah. Go ahead, Mark. Uh, I was going to say, um, you know, cr- Chris just mentioned the, uh, you, know, his, you know, the loss of his parents and you know, uh, other uh, you know, other figures from you know, the Richmond area. But, you know, he also lost his siblings. They were what 
taken into other homes. And it, you know, it, it just seemed, and you know, that, you might be able to come on this. Like, he just seemed, you know, Poe just seems like he was never able to get back to you know, the original family right. unit that was only there mm-hmm. for the, the two years. It's, and, um, what his uh, his brother, uh, I think he he died uh, early, and it, it, his uh, Rosalie, his sister, lit, outlived them uh, by many years. But uh, you know they uh, only had sporadic uh, meetings. But the, you know, Benny, what? Uh, process do you have to take to go back to almost like that pre-cult um, yeah. uh, uh, you know, mode of thinking and you know well-being that you know mm-hmm. we're all here together well it's hard to do that with him because there's no you know point of reference of what his family may yeah. have been like right before his mother passed but, I mean, it seems like he had at least a little bit of a way to recognize death and dissociation because, like, he writes um, – um, I noted something on page 73 where he wrote about Virginia. That was his wife, I believe, that died, and he describes her eyes and describes that um, they were very black and she looked like a disrobed spirit. And I was like, wow – like he had an insight and an understanding of what we now know as trauma, but I don't know whether he would have been able to like define it right because they didn't necessarily have the science to do that. But it would be hard mm-hmm. to know what he would have been because we, uh, Chris, I mean, do we know like his original family if there was love in a family unit there? I don't know how much. But his mother, that he remembered it all, I think in one letter he mentions he didn't remember her at all, but his foster mother really nurtured him, and then the mothers of his classmates, including Jane Standard and another one, they really looked after him. And it seems like once he got expelled from West Point, he moved to Baltimore, there was this brief period he was there with his grandmother, his aunt, two of his cousins and his brother, and they were living in this tiny house on the outskirts of town. Now it's in the middle of Baltimore, but that's all he needed. That's all he wanted was just this family unit where there was trust and and there's just a joy in that. And he tried to grasp on that for the rest of his life, but within six months of moving to Baltimore, his brother dies. And then... One of his cousins, apparently he passed away. We don't know what exactly happened to him. So then it left Poe's grandmother, who also passed away. After that, you just have left his aunt, Mariah Poe Clem, his biological father's sister, and her daughter, Virginia, who became still trying to grasp onto that, that family unit he had in Baltimore, that brief time where everything just, in spite of the poverty, in spite of the struggles, seemed to make sense. And it seems like no matter how poor he was, he made sure he had a piano for his wife to play. He got her tutors and music instructors. And 
friends describe them as having concerts together, I mean, very joyous. And and of course we know that ended tragically when his wife came down with tuberculosis and she only lived to be 24. His mother, brother, and wife all died at age 24. But it seems like when he was at home and he did have that family unit, that's where he really felt he belonged. And he mentions in one of his letters that he wasn't terribly ambitious, that, you know, he wrote because that was his passion. But really what seems important to him was having that family unit that just kept evading him. And the trailer what, miniature, is that part of that part of his life? I mean, is that part of that happy part of his life, that, that little miniature where he's smiling and seemingly happy? Yeah, there actually was another miniature of his mother he always kept with him. There's there's some items that his mother left to him. Even though he didn't know where he kept a watercolor of her mm-hmm. and a watercolor of Boston Harbor. We have no idea where this is, but it's a little painting she did of Boston Harbor in the back. She wrote that that she wanted her little Eddie always to love Boston, the place where she found her truest Aww. friends. And I think that's, that's why when he was 18, when he ran away from home, here's a guy who'd grown up in Richmond. He'd gone to University of Virginia. But when he ran away from home, he had no money, no prospects, but he went to Boston, almost as if he's trying to get back to her. And there's descriptions mm. of him in Charleston years later trying to find out any newspaper accounts of his mother and any time he'd met somebody who'd seen his mother performed, he wanted to know everything about him, everything about his mother, and that you become an object of great interest to me. Whenever you mention my mother, I want to know everything about her. So maybe that little watercolor she made of him just carried him on, and, and maybe he was trying to somehow connect to her this life that at two years old he might not have remembered Okay, so I kind of have a fun question for you since we're talking about, like, <laughs> since, you know, we're talking about portraits and whatnot, right? Okay, so, like, understanding social media, how it is today, uh, you know, people being Instagram influencers and having to post a lot of photos and what you have to do to be a writer and, and all of that. How do you think Poe might have used social media today if he'd have had that in his possession? Do you think he would have used it? Yeah, I think he'd really go well with Twitter because it's very verbal. It's very short and catchy. He wrote a series. There's one of the different magazines that have installments, and the installments could be one one sentence or one paragraph. And it'd just be a series of little quips where sometimes you'd make fun of an author, sometimes compare another author's head to a pumpkin. Sometimes he would keep praise on one author and trash talk another one. And some of these are really funny, but it's called the marginalia. (laughs) And I think that's what he really would have enjoyed. The other thing on the Internet he'd really like would be cat videos. He really loved cats. He had a cat cat named Katarina. I can imagine him, you know, looking at all the cat videos on YouTube and being fascinated with that. (laughs) 
Mark just sent me a birthday card, and it's a green cat, like a green leopard. I love cat videos. I, I feel like Poe is like my ghost boyfriend. <laughs> like if that existed, hypothetically. <laughs> or maybe my long-lost brother. I don't know. But I love that. I love that you get that. But he probably, like, if he had used Instagram, I think he would have used it in a more verbal way, too. He would have been one of those poets that, like, posted little quotes, and you would have always been like, I wonder what that guy looks like. He's brilliant. Oh, my God. Like, he touches the center of you and just died. And he would have thrived off that mystery. Am I pegging him right? Yeah. <laughs> Since you two are uh, talking about uh, cats and Chris already mentioned, uh, yeah, they're a pet cat, uh, Katarina. Benny, your uh, colleague Kathy O'Brien does uh, talk about uh, dogs are helpful in uh, you know the uh, recovery from uh post traumatic stress disorder and mm-hmm. you know, so uh, Chris already mentioned uh you know, the cat uh in in um uh, you know Chris's uh, the post shrine that you know, there was uh what the offer for Poe to have a uh, pet deer and you, know, you also have all, you know all these other pets mentioned in the uh, short stories. Yeah. Yeah. You know, just having a cat doesn't necessarily mean that you know uh, you're recovering from uh, uh, you know, PTSD, but uh, it is suggestive of uh, you know always needing to. Have a uh, you know pet or you know, animal, and you know little kids are are, are like that too. And, you know, even adopt uh, adoptive kids, uh, you know, identify with uh, pets at uh, at the uh, uh, pet stores. You know, and they just kind of see that you know, um, you know it's like you know uh, you know they've already been. You know, the humans have already been through the process of being you know, picked out, like the uh, puppy or kitten at the uh, pet store is you know, waiting to go home to a family. So, you know, you know what you two have already brought brought up seems like yeah, you know, there's a little bit of evidence there of the yeah you know, identifying a little bit better with animals. Yeah, I definitely agree. Um, I know that in her book, um, uh, The PTSD Time to Heal, Kathy talked a lot about connection with nature and animals. And it, it does seem like Poe, again, I, I wonder, and Chris, you might probably are better suited to answer this, if he naturally, as this empathic abuse survivor, gravitated toward animals because he felt that comfort, or if he really understood that relationship, you know, I'm curious about that also. 
I don't know if he understood the relationship. I know that he was very close to his cat, and he was fascinated by at least one of them. He had a black cat, and then he had a tortoiseshell cat. And we know that Katarina, the tortoiseshell, used to sit on the shore while he wrote, and that they had this great bond. And when he died, apparently as soon as his mother-in-law found out that Poe had died, she read in the papers, she also found that Katarina had passed away. And throughout his life, it seems like he was very kind to animals and children. So not quite the image we have of Poe is this sort of this angry, mean-spirited, dark figure, but really somebody who is kind and compassionate. But seems to add a bond to nature. He called nature the altar of Byron. It's his childhood hero, Lord Byron. And he says that he would while away whole days just wandering through the forest and the countryside. And a lot of his essays and even some of his stories are about the beauties and glories of nature. And in particular, there's one of them, The Domain of Arnheim. He writes about this millionaire, and this is an 1800s millionaire, so a billionaire in today's money, who has all this money and can do anything that he wants with it. He can make sculptures or paint or write poems, but he says all he wants to do is make the most beautiful garden in the world, fill it with the most beautiful flowers and landscaping. So for something, there's some kind of retreat that Poe found in nature so maybe that's connected to his love of animals, also his love of being out there in the countryside, and especially if you read his early poems, a lot of them are about nature. So somehow he found he connected with them. And, and maybe through everything, the thing about cats are they are very loyal to you. Now, dogs, I guess, have that reputation for being loyal, but cats are also very loyal to you too. just seems to me that cats... You have to sort of earn their mm-hmm. affection. If they like you, then, yes. then they're your friend. Mm-hmm. So they can be a total snob to somebody else, but if they like you, they're, <laughs> they're yeah. always looking out for you. And they can sense, you know, your moods and if you need support, and they can be there to comfort you. So maybe that's how Katerina was for him. And there is a story about Katerina when Poe's wife was dying. Now, they're living up in the Bronx. And his wife died in January. So imagine in December and January in the countryside. The Bronx wasn't the inner city back then. It was the countryside. All these rolling hills and cherry trees. The wind was probably whipping through the trees. And to keep his wife warm, he'd cover with a little bit of linen. He put his his coat over her. And then Katerina would climb up on her chest. She somehow just knew that Virginia needed that little bit of extra warmth to get her through the night. So Katarina sleep right there on her chest. The cool thing about cats, too, you know, they don't have the uh, ability to hold a grudge. So people think that when a cat is, like, urinating in your bed or pooping in the hallway or something, that they're being bad. But that's actually just their way of conversing. So that's when you would go, hmm, something's off in the house, figure it out, cat will be fine. Um, yeah, there's a difference between cat people and dog people. I'm actually kind of wary of people, who, unless they've been attacked, which I can understand, who are like, I hate cats. I'm like, what's wrong with you? 
I'm like immediately suspicious. I'm like, have you been attacked? And if they say no, I'm like, hmm. <laughs> hmm. Well, maybe cats just get a bad rap. You know, you've got Tom and yeah. Jerry, the cat's the bad guy. Sylvester, the cat's the bad guy. They're always That's out true. to get everybody. <laughs> That's really true. In Five Goes West, it was the same way. Yeah. I didn't think about that. We need to start an organization to defend the cats. We have actually, yeah. speaking of cats, not to go off the post subject, but we have a really good program here. I live in Tacoma near Seattle. But they take the strays that are like the alley cats and they neuter, spade them, and then they put them right back into their like wild community. So I think that's kind of cool. So that was really random, I know, but it just mm-hmm. popped in my head. Yeah, Benny, yeah, you fit, fit in perfectly. Uh, we uh, spoke about the singing frog from the cartoons uh, last night. Oh, uh, great. <laughs> that's oh, oh, two nights you know in a what? row we segued. Into the singing frog? No, it's just cartoons. But that's, yeah. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, good. I'm, good. I'm glad I'm amongst the weird. Then I know I'm at home with my other kin. <laughs> yeah, uh, you are. Yeah, you can't be too normal uh, doing this kind of uh, <laughs> stuff on a week weekly basis. Yeah, yeah. Then it gets boring, huh? Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, so this fascinated me so much, you guys, about Poe, that he was, like, totally a liar. I'm like, I hate that, but then it, it like, it kind of fits in a way. Okay, so here I am again trying to bring Poe into these modern times of what I'm watching on social media. I'm like, oh, my God, he would totally fit in. Because right now we're in this time where, like, anybody can say anything, and Poe would have loved that because he totally was a liar. Well, he's, I mean, am I exaggerating, Chris? (laughs) Uh, He was a great hoaxer, and he lived in the great age of hoaxes. This is the age of P.T. Barnum. Remember the guy who advertised the Fiji mermaid and he showed all these pictures of this beautiful mermaid and he saw it, oh, yes, and he just grafted a fish to a monkey. And then he, at one point in his museum he had on display, what he said was George Washington's 160-year-old nurse. And then he said later, oh, she's not really his nurse, she's a robot. And then later when she died, she said, okay, she wasn't really a robot, but I'm going to have her stuffed or something, put on display anyway. And so Poe came out of this age, and he was able to trick people into thinking somebody had crossed the ocean in a hot air balloon. Somebody rushed out and bought the newspapers. And what he thought was his greatest hoax was the narrative of author Gordon Pym of Nantucket, where he was trying to convince people that they'd traveled to the center of Antarctica and found the South Pole, and there's this big hole in the pole. And he tried to pass off the true story, although in America everybody knew his name, so they'd figure out he didn't, it didn't really happen. But in England, when the book was reprinted, people thought it was a true story. But probably the best hoax was the facts in the case of M. Valdemar, 
which purports to be the true story of a man named Valdemar who is on his deathbed and he's allowed scientists to mesmerize him using this secret magnetic process. And we think of magnetism, mesmerism now similar to hypnotism, but the whole theory was that since people have magnetic forces running through their body, that if you could control the currents of the magnetic forces through their bodies, you could control them. And they were able to keep Valdemar alive after the death of his body so they could still communicate with him after his death and ask him questions. And they kept him alive for a long time. And and so bad, the body was starting to waste away. And when they finally asked him, well, what do you feel? He says, I must die, I must die. And then they woke him up from his trance and just Valdemar dissolved into a pool of goo before their very eyes. Now that sounds really fantastic, but Poe is coming from that right age, the right time, when people were mm-hmm. performing mesmeric experiments. Probably the most famous is Andrew Jackson Davis, who would go on stage, and he would enter a mesmeric trance, or he would say he would, and, and he said he could communicate with spirits from other sides. So he's what we call a trance medium now, something similar to, say, Edgar Casey, who would go into a trance. And about the same time that Andrew Jackson Davis was on stage in New York City, Poe was publishing Mesmeric Revelation, The Facts in the Case of M. Valdemar. And even after Poe revealed that Valdemar was a hoax, people wouldn't believe it was a hoax. They wanted to believe that he had kept a man alive after his death. And even a spiritualist wrote to Poe and said, you're just pretending this is a hoax, right? We really know it's a true story. Even Andrew Jackson Davis said that, oh, Poe's only pretending that it's fake that Poe really was a clairvoyant, that Poe really did have these powers. He just doesn't believe it. He doesn't want the world to know it. So Poe became almost like a member of the spiritual movement without even trying it. That's really interesting when you think about conspiracy theories, like present conspiracy theories. uh, Like um, I'm thinking along the lines of people who believe themselves to be targeted individuals or that, you know, electromagnetic weaponry can be used on you, right? For him to be writing about something along that line, maybe more electronic hookup, but I think he would have loved conspiracy theories. Oh, yeah, and he he also liked to play tricks on the public. And people don't always know which ones were really his tricks. There's the case of Poe continually antagonizing Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, the most famous, famous <laughs> poet in the country, again and again, month after month in this magazine, he trashed Longfellow. And Longfellow, you know, he doesn't need to dignify this response, so he just ignore it. And Poe kept accusing him of plagiarism, pointing out line after line. He thought that Longfellow had cribbed from somebody else's poetry. And since yeah, Longfellow wouldn't answer it, <laughs> Somebody named Aldous wrote a letter to Poe's magazine accusing Poe of plagiarism. And Poe went through and pointed out line by line every flaw in Aldous's argument. Wow. And tried to shut Aldous down. But now a lot of people think that Poe was Aldous. Because Aldous knew oh, nobody. Oh, that's even. brilliant. <laughs> I would have never thought that, but that's really smart. And then another occasion... <laughs> Poe challenged his readers to send him any sort of puzzle or cryptogram or code, anything they could, and he would solve it. So for 99 of these different codes they sent him, he's able to crack each one of them. There's one that was 
a fake code that was impossible to crack, and he proved why it's impossible to crack. And nowadays critics think, well, you know what? Poe was probably sending himself a lot of those codes and puzzles to solve. That's why he solved it so easily. So there's that. Now there's always going to be that doubt. Which things did Poe really do? Which things were just hoaxes? Was it always just a trick he was playing on the public? And you know when he died, some people thought he wasn't really dead, that that was a trick. And then he always would tell people his first book was this book, Tamerlane, that hadn't been distributed, it hadn't been released. And after he died, people thought Tamerlane was a hoax. Now we know there really was a book called Tamerlane. They only printed about 50 copies of it. It's his first book. It's the most valuable book in American literature now. There's only about 12 copies known to exist. So you never really do know when is he pulling a fast one on you and when you can believe what he's saying. He seemed to have a lot of fun with that. He kind of like reminds me of the Banksy in poetry. You know, Banksy, the street artist. Yeah. Mark? And then... Yeah. Okay. I was, I, I'm still here. So I'm just still there. I, I, it's enraptured too, huh? Yeah. 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 You're a great storyteller. Great storyteller. Yeah, and, and, and Chris is very detailed uh, too. Yeah. 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 He is. You are. <laughs> I also, you know, love that Poe was like um, fascinated with human psyche. So um, um, he tried to figure out the, that murder, the murder of Mary Rogers, right? He was yes. super obsessed with that. Yeah, he'd, he thought that, well, Americans didn't really know how to solve these crimes, that we're in very the early days of criminology, then New York City still didn't have police departments. This was still a few years before the NYPD was founded in 1845, so we're talking a time when they had constables who patrolled up and down the street, make sure nobody's hurting anybody or anything, you know, just keeping the peace. And then in the midst of this, a lady called Mary Rogers was found missing. She just disappeared. She's gone for three days. She was well-known around New York City because she used to work in Anderson's Cigar Emporium. She was one of the most beautiful women in New York City. They called her the beautiful cigar girl. And all of a sudden, she was missing. When they found her, she was floating the Hudson River, strangled. Nobody knew what had happened to her. They performed a preliminary autopsy. They found some scratch marks in the back. They found a, a cord that was tied around her throat very tightly. The skin had swollen up as her, her body had been bloating, and it almost covered up the cord. It was tied with a sailor's knot. And then between the constables and in New York City and across the river in Hoboken where they found the body floating in the river, they couldn't figure out, well, whose jurisdiction is this, how to investigate this case. The constables interrogated everybody she'd ever known, her employer, her fiancé, one of the tenants in her mother's boarding house, and nobody confessed. They just gave up and said, you know what? It's probably the Irish. It's probably a gang of Irish must have killed her. There's all these lawless gangs of immigrants, so they're easy targets. And Poe looked at the, at the case. He read everything about the newspapers. 
And he said, you know what? That doesn't make any sense. Look at these scratch marks on her back. That means the body was dragged to the river. And a gang would have just picked her up and carried her to the river and dumped her in there. So she was dragged by a single killer. Who is this killer? Well, there was a sailor's knot used to tie the cord around her throat. So he said somebody who was a sailor, and he tried to profile who could have done this. He tried to piece it together. Then he looked at all the facts in the case. He wrote a whole story called The Mystery of Marie Roger about the case. It's his longest short story. It's 20,000 words. So it was printed in three different installments. And even after the first installment, new evidence was coming to light in the case. So he had to add that to the story to keep it going. And he thought that where they really knew how to investigate crime was France. The chief of police over there in Paris the doc had published his memoirs in the 1830s, and Poe was fascinated by that. So that's why his mystery stories, the Mystery Mirage, the Merge of the Rumor, the Pearl and Letter, are all set in France because that's where people really understand criminology. He's considered so he the this, inventor of the detective story, right? Yeah, this is a whole new genre. This was before the word mm-hmm. detective had entered the English language. Right. He's lying about these impossible, horrible crimes, things that were gradually seeping into our culture. Before that, we hadn't seen as much urban violence, but now we're seeing these really violent crimes in our face, and we seem like we're helpless to control it. And here Poe invents a new story about how we can overcome the violence and the murder found in today's streets that we can investigate these crimes. He creates a character who's who analyzes the crime scene, studies and interprets the evidence, profiles the criminals, pieces it all together. And this is very similar to his story, A Descent into the Maelstrom. It's a post story about a man. It starts out like a horror story almost. He says that something so horrifying happened in the space of a, one day. His hair is all turned white. He's seen the most horrible, awful thing he could possibly imagine And he recounts a tale of how once he was out sailing and he got trapped in a giant whirlpool. Now imagine you're sinking, swirling around this whirlpool. You're getting lower and lower and lower, not to be sucked to your death. And that's a typical setup for a horror story. But then Poe introduces this element where all of a sudden, while he's on his ship sinking to the bottom of the whirlpool, he starts to observe the rate at which different size objects sink into the whirlpool, and he tries to devise a way to escape. So it's this reason overcoming the impossible foe, overcoming the chaos and destruction. Both thought ultimately reason can prevail. And later on he did write a book called Eureka, in which he tried to reason out why there's good and evil why the universe works the way it does. How does everything come here? Where did it come from? Where is it all going? So Poe really placed a lot of stock in the power of reason. And I think that's why he's the perfect one to have invented the detective story. This still predates Sherlock Holmes by about 46 years. And Sir Arthur Conan Doyle actually said that there really wasn't much original to do after Poe invented the genre. With all the standard plot devices, the locked door mystery, the least likely suspect. 
And then he did this way before the rest. So that's why the Mystery Rise of America gets out that Edgar Award every year. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that he had so much um, uh, um, interest in, like, ethics and the law and, and forensics and things like that. But yet at the same time in his personal life, he was constantly, you know, spinning these imaginative scenarios about himself. So he just, like, lived... It's just interesting to me on a psychological level that he lived this exposition like that. Well, that's something Poe understood. He understood that we weren't all just one thing, that we weren't all just the ego. We were all just this one voice inside our head telling us what to do, that we're also at least one other thing that that the, the driver thinks he's driving that elephant, but actually it's the yeah. elephant who's in control and so here's Poe, he understood, but he called it, there was also an imp of the perverse. We might call it the id, that there was something dark linking, mm-hmm. lurking just below the surface that we couldn't control, that was maybe even bigger and more powerful than us. Mm. So Poe's want to start to break down that there's more than just that one voice in our head, that we're sort of pieces, or just different parts all working together or against each other. Sometimes doing the thing we don't want to do for the sake of doing the thing we don't want to do. So maybe mm-hmm. Poe was sometimes his own worst enemy, that sometimes he was following the imp of the perverse instead of following the voice that would have let him to do the right thing. Do you think he was dissociative? I mean, like, traumatically dissociative? Like, I see indications slightly of that in some of his work, where he, I mean, just, and I mean that from, like, being different people and enjoying being different people mm-hmm. and like really playing into that kind of shutting this part out by, do you know what I mean? Uh, he never really mentions that in his letters, so we can't, we don't get it directly from him, so it's kind of difficult to tell. But somehow he had insights into this. He started to study, well, why do people think the way they do? Why do they act the way they do? If they mm-hmm. know they shouldn't do something, why do they do that? What's going on there? Yeah. And then and then Poe sometimes, in some of his letters, he doesn't mention, you know, why am I sad here? I know I shouldn't be. Everything's mm-hmm. going my way. And it doesn't quite make sense. And then he talks in one of his letters about and these moments when he's incredibly industrious and he's getting all this done. And in other moments, he just can't do anything for weeks at a time. And that's, Sounds a little bit like it's maybe depression. You know, maybe he's bipolar there or something. Maybe he's depressed. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm. But other than that, it's sometimes difficult to read him from his letters. Yeah. Benny, you uh, just mentioned uh, dissociation, um, and you know I don't know if this is real would be related to dissociation. But uh, um, when you read the short stories and poems, there there really isn't a sense of time other than the few of the works where something happens at midnight or... There, there, uh, there are well, a couple short stories like uh, 
<clears throat> was it the House of Usher? It happens in seventeen dash. You know, <clears throat> he doesn't tell you uh, the, the year. Is mm-hmm. not having a reference to time part mm-hmm. of maybe some of this trauma from such such an early age? Yeah. Where is could 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 all that be interpreted into understanding his works? I think so. I mean, it definitely does for me because I did deal with dissociation, and I think there's a misconception that dissociation is one thing when actually there's many, many um, impairments and that, that are blanketed under that. So, it, you know, what we know now with science is a child like him who grew up abandoned, shunned, um, even though he had a good um, foster mother, I mean, and that does matter, but then it doesn't. Because when you are a child who is shunned by your father, you've lost your mother in this traumatic way, um, it's hard for people who haven't experienced it to kind of understand that those horrible moments become your life. And so dissociation can even be where you kind of just go robotic, right? And days slip into days and weeks into weeks and years into years, and you're just kind of getting through life. But you're sad. And so there's not a lot of markers in there for you to reference. And so that can be a form of dissociative disorder too, which isn't always like that civil thing that people talk about or, or think that it is. And I do see indications of that too, with his kind of skipping time and bending time and, and those things that happen when, when you're just trying to escape, you know, certain things as a kid. Okay. Hey, uh, we're approaching the uh, top of the hour and yeah, uh, I think maybe we should just uh, give Vanny and Chris a moment to plug their websites and any upcoming appearances. Uh, Vanny, do you want to sure. start? Well, my website is vennycosis.com. That's V-E-N-N-I-E-K-O-C-S-I-S.com. Right now, I've been talking with Matt from Beyond Your Past. We've been talking about um, something that's near and dear to my heart, and that's helping, you know, people who've been sexually abused to learn how to heal, learn how to, you know, manage life and and all of that. So I've really been delving into more of being open about that. And I'm... Very close to finishing my sequel to Cold Child. So I'm getting in that excited realm, and that's called Rise of Scylla, and I'm hoping to have that at least for pre-order by end of April, May, somewhere in there. So, yeah, you can find me at my website and follow my work and get my blog posts and things like that. So. Okay. And Chris? Okay. Well, the Poe Museum's website is poemuseum.org. And our next big event's coming up in April, I believe April 16th. We have a book signing at the Garden, but April 25th, it's the fourth Thursday of the month, we have the first unhappy, unhappy hour of 2019. It's kind of like a happy hour, except it's at the Poe Museum. And we have local breweries provide the drinks, local restaurants provide the food, we have live music outside, and it's a great place to 
come and just relax after work in the Enchanted Garden. This is a garden that was modeled after Poe's works back in the 1920s. And the end of April is when a lot of the beautiful pieces are in bloom, so it's a great place to just sit back, kick back, relax, and tour the museum while you're there. And we'll be having throughout the summer from April through October, the fourth Thursday of each month. So you definitely want to check those out. And I think my next speaking engagement will be at RavenCon on April 6th. That's in Williamsburg. And it's a science fiction fantasy convention that has sort of a post spell in it because it started out in Richmond, so they call it RavenCon. And I'll be speaking about Poe the superhero. This year the theme is superheroes, so I'm going to make the case that Poe is a superhero. After all, I did fight crime with Batman and with the Atom. There's a limited edition comic series called Batman Nevermore, so Poe actually did join forces with Batman. (laughs) That's great. (laughs) I do have to say I have the mug from the museum, by the way. Oh, good. I have, I, that is really seriously like my favorite mug. It's so well made. Like, I know it feels like I'm love bombing you right now, but I really do love that mug. I mean, Mark can tell you, I've posted so many selfies with like different angles of the mug because it has so many sayings and pictures and it's amazing. I love it. So, yeah. And if anybody's <laughs> in Virginia or nearby, we're only about two hours south of Washington, D.C. And Richmond's a fairly small city, but it's a nice place to stop on your way to D.C. or to Williamsburg or Charlottesville and just spend the day there. We've got the world's largest collection of Edgar Allan Poe's things, everything from the socks on his feet to the hair on his head. And just about <laughs> everything in between there. Okay, and... and, and- Okay, oh, go, go, go ahead and finish first. Have, well, pardon? Right, go, go, go ahead and finish. Um, speaking of cats, we do have Edgar and Pluto there. You can visit our Poe Museum cats. Aww. And just, when people are attending the unhappy hour in the Enchanted Garden, in <laughs> Book, you talk about the pergola was made from the bricks from uh, the, the building where Poe worked? Yeah, that came from the first floor facade of the Southern Literary Messenger Building. See, the Poe Museum started out with the idea of just building, being a shrine to Poe, a place where mm-hmm. people from around the world could come and pay homage to a great writer. And this was a really weird idea and Richmond or in Virginia at the time because we were a place that celebrated our military leaders from you know this, the American Revolution, the War of 1812, the Mexican-American War, and finally the Civil War. So it was really a strange idea to have some kind of monument for a writer. And even the newspaper at the time thought, well, all he did was write poetry. Why would you want to honor this guy for writing poetry? Why is the written word important? But this group, the founders of the Poe Foundation, they said, well, this is a way we can celebrate imagination, creativity, beauty, all the things that Poe brought together. So, yeah, the 
the whole garden is made of pieces from Poe's life. There's benches out there made from one of his homes. There's a pergola made out of the bricks and granite from his office. Even the stones under your feet, those bricks came from different places Poe lived or worked. One of the buildings out there is made of the pieces from one of his foster father's buildings. And then we have furnishings from his different homes all throughout the complex. So it's a little bit of everything. They just brought in, this is the 1920s, that they brought in just little bits and pieces from Poe's life all to one place. And they did call it the Poe Shrine at first. We Now they call it the Poe Museum. It sounds a little bit less fanatical, but maybe these two were a little bit fanatical. <laughs> Well, I'm kind of fanatical, too, you know, so. I'm one of those groupies. I'm a Poe groupie. A lot of the people who changed the world, you know. I guess all these people who thought, well, the written word can change the world. They Mm. were thought of as fanatics. But imagine this, the people who started NASA's space program. Mm-hmm. In the early days, they said, well, they, they all grew up reading Jules Verne's works. They all yeah. grew up reading this science fiction because Jules Verne or Poe or George Lucas, they have this power to show us not just what is, but what could be. They show us these possibilities. Yeah. And then they allow the next generation to try to think, well, how does this work? How could we travel to the moon? How can we go to Mars? How can we invent a teleportation device? Just be sure don't get in there with a fly at the same time. It won't go well for you. (laughs) (laughs) So I have a question. Um, I know that um, the lady, Sarah Whitman, she she did these seances, right, to to communicate with his spirit. I'm curious, are there any mediums who claim to have contact with his spirit, like in present day, have you ever met anyone who, who said that or, or authenticated it, right? So, you know, said, yes, I do. And then are there any mediums well, out there that, that talk to I'm Poe? sure there are some out there, but I haven't met them. Over the years, there were people who claimed that Poe transcribed poetry to them. Lizzie Dogan was one in the 1850s and 60s who mm-hmm. published a book called The Poems of the Inner Light. And she has a few poems she said that, that Poe gave to her from the other side. But today I met one who, this is probably a few years back, but he told me that he he could hear Poe's wife speaking to me. And he says that Poe's wife, Elizabeth, has a message for me. I said, you mean Virginia? And he said, oh, yeah, Virginia. And he says, Okay, now, so so Elizabeth, his wife, says, and I think maybe he got, he got his signals crossed a little bit there. Are you there? Uh, cr- yeah, I'm still here. Oh, yeah. You can't leave yeah, uh, me. What happened? <laughs> well, he Did you said get the message? No, she said that you know, that thing you were thinking of doing, you should do it. Mm. Was there a thing you were thinking of doing? I was thinking of writing a book about Poe's wife, so I guess she wanted me to do that, unless it was huh. his mother, Elizabeth, and not his wife, Virginia. 
Which would have meant what? Well, he was saying Elizabeth, but his wife was named Virginia. But what if it had been Elizabeth? What would she have wanted you to do? I'm not sure. <laughs> she, he kept it vague enough that she can't really tell it. Find the missing trunk. <laughs> yeah. yeah it, Chris, speaking of uh, you know these missing trunks, you know in the Poe Shrine you have <clears throat> uh, it documented the history of where some of the furniture came from, as you know Poe sat in this chair while uh, you know working at the desk at the Southern Literary me- uh, Messenger. And, you know, it, yeah, you also cover some of the other uh, you know, supposed connections with donations that have come in. That uh, you know, it's, you know, this just can't be you know, the real thing. And yeah, but you, know, you really do. Uh, you know, present uh, on you know, like some of the portraits uh, and, and you know, a couple of the other artifacts where you know we aren't really sure. It's yeah, you know, there's a possible connection. You know, you, you know, present both sides of the case. You, you know, we, you know, we just don't know uh, where this artifact came from. But um, you know, you, you, you really do make a. a a point in uh, the post shrine about where you know, you basically have to be like Rick Harrison from Pawn Stars and ask these people who are wanting to donate, uh, uh, you know, just say a desk. Well, I want to see the paperwork, or you know. It, 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 you know, you know, this is a uh, you know, some r- really tough questions that you have to ask about the, the uh, purchases or what you're accepting from donors. Oh, yeah, because you never really know what you have, and it's only worth as much as they can prove that it is what it's supposed hmm. to be. And with a lot of things, it's pretty easy. With manuscripts, it's it's 99% of the time you look at it, and within a segment, you say, oh, it's not Poe. You can tell either the handwriting's completely off or it's just a flat-out forgery. With other things, like, say, a ring. Uh, once I was approached by someone who had a ring. They said that Poe gave it to their ancestor. We knew that Poe knew their ancestors. So that sounded great, so we could make that connection. But then the ring dated to about 40 years after Poe died, which I think is proof that Poe was a time traveler. So he's able to go forward in time, get that ring, and go back in time and give that to them. But until we can prove that, then it looks like maybe that wasn't him. We even have a photo in our collection. It's an albumin print carte de visite of Poe, a process that was really popular in the 1860s and well onto the end of the 19th century. And on the back of it, it said that it was given 
to their ancestor, one of Poe's friends, by Poe himself. But we knew that the photograph didn't exist until about 20 years after Poe died. So some of those things are pretty easy to strike down the provenance of them just right right up front. But other things, you have to do a little bit more digging because you'll say, though, this piece is the glass checks out. It seems to be the right manufacturer. It's a style of something in Poe's day. You look at it in a black light and it looks right. But then you have to start really tracking down the provenance. Well, who owned this? Are they mentioned in the old letters? How far back can we verify the history? And it would be great if Poe would leave us more receipts and say that on this day I gave somebody this pen knife that was exactly four inches by a quarter of an inch and it had a mother of pearl handle, but then Poe doesn't do that. It would have made it a lot easier for us, or at least if Poe had taken a picture of himself handing somebody one of these artifacts. So it takes a lot of digging, but fortunately the museum's been around since, you know, 1921, and we opened our doors in 1922, so a lot of these people got things directly from people who'd known Poe, from his sister. The trunk came by way of Poe's sister. The walking stick came by way of one of Poe's friends in Richmond, his doctor, and it went from the doctor to his heirs to, to the museum. So the shorter the provenance, usually the better for us. And it, in the grand scheme of things, Poe didn't die that long ago. 1849 isn't really... A, that long ago, so you know, there's not a lot of people. Well, probably nobody alive today. He was alive in 1849. At least when the museum opened, there were people still alive who could still verify some of these things. Well, I think I might a little bit be Poe incarnate because I really get him. Okay, like here's when you were talking about hoping like a time bender he was all like he really cared about his shoes even though he was poor right we're like good little people like you'll think we have a million dollar outfit on but we paid 10 bucks for it and we're like a little fake about our emotions in a way where we're really humble but we also do want you to tell us that our hair looks nice and you like our shoes and we want you to notice them, but, like, don't really say anything about it because then we're going to be like, ah, oh, you know, and we'd be totally mortified if you ever gave us, like, a voucher for a haircut or new shoes, but secretly he's loved the gift. I get him. I totally like Poe me. So I'm just saying I do believe it's possible. <laughs> yeah. And that's one of the great things about our collection. We do have some opposed clothing with this beautiful silk waistcoat, elaborately embroidered. Oh, that. Is that the, the like vest? Do, yeah, it's that vest and the oh, socks. We have them gorgeous. on display together and the walking oh. sticks on display with them. And what I like to do is if we have a school group there, I like to bring them there and just have them, you know, look at those pieces and ask them, well, well what can you tell them? What materials are used to make this? What what kind of person you think would wear something like this and they really got to start to know Poe through his clothes you know I ask well Mm, these are fancy clothes who would wear clothes that are this fancy and and you know what insight does that give us into his personality and through these objects you start to get to know the man so they say that the clothes make the man they're the clothes right there and you get to start to really step into his world and follow in his footsteps. 
And it's also a great encouragement for these kids who visit the museum because they can see that, you know what, he was walking these same streets I am, you know. There's no mm. reason I can't go out and accomplish what I want to do or can't try to live my dreams. And this is something that he did. And, and, and hopefully that's encouraging to those students who come. Mm-hmm. Although it wasn't easy, mm. so we're not trying to tell no. him that it was easy. He never had it easy. He had right. a struggle for most of his life, and he was doing something that just wasn't done. It was the craziest idea that he was going to be a professional poet in the United States. And they really made a living just off their poetry before. About his vest, this is what I have on my notepad, page 186. The vest, exclamation point, OMG, written just like that. I am in love with this vest. (laughs) What kind of style do you think Poe would adopt in current culture? I think it would be important for him to be super unique but he would like to have his own style and he'd recycle. What do you think his style would be if he lived today? It would be kind of flashy. Mm. I, I keep thinking of Tom Wolfe, who just passed away, I think last year, the year before, always dressed in his trademark white suit. Suppose mm-hmm. he has some kind of trademark outfit. He mm. wants you to notice him. He wants you to know who he was. He's always very dapper. You notice that. Yeah. Side whiskers were in style. He had the side whiskers. When they went on style, he shaved those things off and grew a mustache. So he was keeping up with the times. So he's trying to be kind of trendy, but even in his day, people would comment. Would he wear skinny jeans? How... Maybe they're too trendy. <laughs> <laughs> he, he he wouldn't go that young, right? He'd be more yeah. into like suits and, and, and vests and like yeah. cool ties and maybe hats, no hats. You know, yeah, maybe a top hat and a tuxedo. Mm, mm, yeah, I that, like it. So maybe, I, don't, I don't think he'd go as far as Liberace or anything, but he <laughs> won't look good when he gave his performances. Yeah. That's cool to think about, huh? Yeah, because he, he said to be appreciated, you must be read. So to be appreciated, people have to read you, but to read you, they have to notice you, and he, he wanted to be noticed. He, he, he liked what made him stand out. And earlier I mentioned that, you know, he always felt he was alone, he was on the outside, but I think he came to terms with that, and he reveled in that idea that mm-hmm. he was something mm-hmm. different, he was on the outside. Mm-hmm. I and get that, too. He, yeah. he couldn't do anything the way people, other people did it. He always had to do things his own way. So do you want to play a really quick game with me, Craig? Okay. (laughs) You didn't say that with very much zest. I want you to be like, yeah. Okay, let's go for it. My new shopping mantra is what would Poe wear? I want to get that T-shirt. That's one of my questions. But, okay, has anyone claimed to be Poe's child or to have had Poe's child? Like well, there was one. Well, nobody after his death claimed to be his child, but in the late 20th century, somebody claimed to be a descendant, a direct descendant. So that would claim that his ancestors were Poe's child, but Poe, as far as we know, didn't have any children. So as far as we know, that that excludes. 
Frances Osgood, she was a poet who lived in New York City, and she lived there about the same time Poe did. She had a child named Fanny Faye. There were rumors that it was Poe's child, although since then people pretty much dismissed that. But Fanny Faye died in infancy, so we really have no way of knowing now, no way of testing anything. That was going to be my other question. So, like, his DNA is not, like, on 23andMe or, or like, Ancestry.com. Yeah. Like, you know, his DNA is not available to even know if you could yeah, be, his, right? Okay. Yeah, his brother so, died young. His his sister never had any children. So nobody mm-hmm. from Poe and his siblings, nothing would have come straight down. There's, there's a lot of descendants of cousins. Mm-hmm. So at least get us in the family, but not really close so this is for you and Mark okay going to put you guys on the spot and I'm you okay. know kind of one up because I did have time to think about this so um, I try to think like who would Poe's favorite poet to be if he was in modern times okay so here's what I came up with I think he would like Maya Angelou because I think he would love also like the sadness of Sylvia Plath I think he would really dig her like maybe even fall in love with her and then I think maybe he might be really, like, a little revolutionary and, like, somebody like Gil Scott Heron or Saul Williams, you know, who just, like, hold nothing back and they're raw. So who do you guys think that, you know, he would really be into if he was in modern times in the poetry and literature now? Well, in Poe's day, poetry wasn't just to be read. It was something to be heard and be almost sung and if you listen to I think it's the poets speak there's even some recordings there of Alfred Lord Tennyson Robert Browning you can hear although they almost chanted their poetry and Mm -hmm. Poe really made his living by performing his poetry those last few years of his life he was traveling he was giving public readings so I think we can't just limit it to people known for printing their works but for people slam poets these are slam poets. So like Paul Williams and, is a slam poet, yes. And also musicians, Bob Dylan. He won the mm. Nobel Prize for Literature, mm-hmm. so why would he like yes. Bob Dylan? And yes, we also know that Poe loves a lot of women poets. He's He was really encouraging of women poets like Frances Osgood and mm-hmm. Susan Talley. So he Elizabeth Fairbrowning. Yeah, Elizabeth Browning dedicated the book The Raven and other poems to her. So maybe so he'd he would be like into like our... deaf comedy jam or deaf poetry jam, something like that. Like he would love to watch anything where people were performing, speaking. Yeah, or even just musicians. Word. Maybe yeah. he would like Taylor Swift. Who knows? <laughs> she's a female and she's a poet. And... Yeah, who knows? Who knows? It would be interesting to know, though. I kind of like tried to bring his his mindset into what he might be into now. I know that his... he likes rhythmical complexity. He likes the rhythm of it. So he'd like people who experiment with the rhythm and the rhyme, but also mm-hmm. he would like people who could create an emotional impact. He wants some kind of unified emotional impact. So some people who could really touch your emotions. That's what I really love about Saul Williams is his his poetry is really raw and so is his delivery. 
So when you hear him, you kind of go, damn. Um, another one who's like that from Seattle is Mary Lambert. She's a singer, too, but she's also a poet. And she kind of makes you just go, your heart just goes, ah. Those people that just, okay. So next question, you guys. What are your top most accurate, like, movies that have been made about Toad's life? Uh, so far, none of them. <laughs> there was... yeah, they need to make a movie off of your book, basically. <laughs> well, there was one about, I think, about 1915 called The Raven that was pretty funny. It was a silent film that silent movie, you yeah. can find on YouTube that goes over the basics of Poe's life. And it even has to flood things a little bit. I think it has... At the end, Virginia's on her deathbed and Poe's out trying to sell the raven to make it look extra money, and he finally sells the raven, and he gets back and finds out that Virginia's died. And it's this about a 20-minute little silent film. But I thought that was kind of a nice piece, even though it was short, yeah. it was to the point. The next one is, there was one in the 40s called The Loves of Edgar Allan Poe, Oh, it really doesn't have a whole lot going for it, but yeah, but so it does. It has to combine characters. It invents a few scenes that never happened, but it does portray a very different Poe than what we're used to seeing. It's it's not the gloomy, you know, misanthropic Poe. It's a Poe who really was motivated by his love for the women in his life. Would you ever write a script, a movie script? Of post life, would you ever consider doing something like that? Well, I've never tried since so many people have done it, and even Sylvester Stallone's written his post screenplay that he wants to get done. Really, I didn't know that. Uh, so, wow, I didn't either. Oh yeah, it's but none of them are experts like you, Chris. You're the guru, yeah. man. Did, did Sylvester uh, consult with you? No, he he wrote this. I think the first draft was in the seventies, <laughs> and there is a photo of him online somewhere, either in his in his Instagram account or something that shows him in his Poe outfit back then. It's a blurry little black and white photo. He shows himself dressed up like Poe. He later decided that he needed another another actor to portray Poe. But we sometimes it's tempting to forget that you know before he was the big action hero, he was writing the screenplay the for Rocky. And, <laughs> and he did that too, so maybe it would be a different kind of Poe biopic. Well, uh, there, wow. yeah, there is the uh, uh, Philadelphia connection with Rocky and Sylvester Stallone and Poe. Yeah, so I haven't read the screenplay. I don't know exactly where he begins or ends, but it might be a nice piece. Or even if they could just do something that focuses on the mer- murder of Mary Rogers, which is some, one episode from his life. Benny, yeah. mm-hmm. yeah. uh, you know, for one of my uh, answers for the uh, Poe would like... Yeah. Yeah, I I would think Stephen King would ha- have to be in there somewhere. I and mean, it's like even with mm-hmm. Pet Cemetery and yeah, you know, they're mm-hmm. you know the uh, 
Virginia and Edgar's love yeah. for uh, pets. I, that that just seems like it, you know a a perfect extension of the black cat. And as much as like Stephen King's pretty. Uh, um, uh, um, has a high profile on social media. He does, and, and I think Poe would like his language, his writing language. Stephen King has that kind of, you know, dirty birdie, that kind of like. I think he would like that. That's mm-hmm. like on words he does. Yeah, yeah. You know, like, That's a misery. I think about King. Mm-hmm. It, mm-hmm. And uh, you know, I don't know. Uh, maybe he would like. Uh, I was just thinking, just for a poet sample, uh, E. E. Cummings has some uh, you know, poems that you know really make him stand out. And you get the you know, all, you know writing everything in lowercase. You know, just like that that little right. personality quirk thing that uh, you know. Make someone stand out, you know. Poe, you know, kind of gravitated towards that as well. I kind of like that he had a little haterism in him, right? That he would like make fun of it. I know this is like terribly dramatic, but I love the thought of like thinking about Poe just like unleashing on someone on Twitter. <laughs> I think also Poe came from a different world where he wrote for the magazines, and the magazines were the mass media. And they had a great mm-hmm. demand for short stories, and short stories weren't really refined fiction. They were the things for the masses. They were things that everybody could read. You would go out and read Godey's Ladies' Book, and or you read Blackwood's Magazine, and read these strange, bizarre stories. So that was thought of as not really the supreme art form like poetry or a novel. And Poe made it into an art form. He made the short story mm-hmm. into a great art form. And it's kind of where television was not 20 years ago where they said, well, cinema is art and television is furniture. But now we have these great series that have intricate plot lines and story arcs and really take you somewhere else. And television has never been better. So I think Poe would really embrace a lot of what's going on in television and in Netflix and maybe even okay. web shows. He would be interested in what the new medium is. Even in his lifetime, he was interested in photography. Photography had been invented in Poe's lifetime. He's fascinated by this new technology and how you can make art out of the new technology. So maybe he'd be interested in holographic theater or the holodeck or who knows what. Okay, so and, I don't and think Chris, really you... just a wooden word. Okay, and yeah. Chris, you just mentioned, you know, Poe would, would have uh, connected, wanted to connect with, you know, the modern audiences, you know, like he did through the magazine. You know, just going for yeah. the, the the most highly visible medium. And in your Poe shrine, you include Poe's legacy as being brought up in. South Park. Yeah, we have to talk. Yeah, South Park has to be one of the most high-profile uh, TV shows out there. Um, 
I thought that was you, you, you made a, a, an excellent point there about his uh, his, his legacy. It, you know, hundred and fifty, sixty years later, he, he still uh, attracts an audience, and I think it's kind. Of, it, you know, you do present it in a comical way, but it's also appropriate that. Uh, you're working him into such a well-known show. Yeah, you never know who's going to pop up. He'll be on The Simpsons one week. There's been a few <laughs> different episodes of The Simpsons. They did a Telltale Heart episode when think, Lisa <laughs> was trying to sabotage another kid's diorama. They did a Raven episode, the first Treehouse of Horror had the raven at the end narrated by James Earl Jones of all people and part <laughs> was the raven and so he just shows up on science fiction shows from time to time and on comedies Sabrina the Teenage Witch on Baywatch there's actually a Baywatch episode about I think a, a professor who's a poet and he has face damage so he lived underneath the pier and he fell in love with one of the, the lifeguards and and he recited Annabelle Lee for them so you never know how he's going to pop up in popular culture How does and his copyright work? Can people just utilize it? Or, I mean, you can't yeah, just go make t-shirts with his quotes, right? Is it public domain? Yeah. It's all in the public domain so anybody wow. who wants to make a Poe t-shirt or Poe film can just go out and Really? Do it. Uh-oh. And so Poe really does belong to all of us now. That's amazing. And all over the world, people are wow. reading his works, and he's a recognizable figure. Or one of our former presidents of the board of the museum was a Poe. He's a descendant of one of Poe's uncles. His name was Hal Poe, and he went to Germany to do a television game show about guessing their famous ancestor. And as soon as they heard him speak and he said, they heard his American accent, they said, oh, Edgar Allan Poe. <laughs> and at the museum, we get people every year from 30 different countries, from all 50 states. There's people who come and they have no idea who Thomas Jefferson is. So it doesn't mean anything to them. Hey, Thomas Jefferson designed that building down the street. But they know who Poe was. Mm-hmm. And they know who Poe still is, and they know those stories. So I would like to see more Poe films getting made. Yeah, and I have to say, anyone to talk to about the trauma I've been through, not being able to define it, the way that I um, connected even with myself, right, was through what I read. And Poe was like, oh my God, I, he was me in the depth of my darkest being as a teenager and so you know with my novel is kind of being used in the mental health world right now it's been very amazing because it's written in first person so you really get inside the mind of a child who's being abused and I think Poe's work could be used in a therapeutic way with a teenage genre because of the way of the impact it had on me 
I don't think it's presented enough um, to young people as an outlet to read. Um, it inspired me to write my own poetry and develop my own voice. I think his work is very special when it comes to the link between um, writing, handwriting, and, and reading certain genres and trauma and being able to learn how to process it. It really helped me a lot. I definitely need to read more Poe in school. And mm-hmm. The good thing about his works is that he seems to tap into the human experience in a way that a lot of other writers from his period don't. That's why a lot of yeah. people find themselves struggling through some of these other authors, and they just can't connect with them. There's, yeah. there's something maybe too impersonal about them. But with Poe, they feel almost like they know him, that they can appreciate yeah. him. Yeah. He doesn't hold back. I mean, he's just like, I'm going to lay it all out. You know, his hallucinations, I mean, even, why is there such a big, um, like, I kind of feel instinctually that he does not kill himself. Why is there such a big leaning towards suicide, quote, unquote, in that, like, if you want to look at killing yourself, okay, alcoholism, you're definitely killing yourself, but is your intent in your mind to die, right? I don't know if that was his intent, but why is there such a leaning toward that concept or ideal? Well, there was a suicide attempt about a year before his death. He was at a very low point, but then after that, it seems like at the time he died, he had pulled himself Mm -hmm. up out of that. Yeah. And he seemed to be in a good place where he had finally found the financial backers so he could start his magazine. He'd reunited with his first serious girlfriend, his first fiance, mm-hmm. Elmira Royster Shelton, and everything was starting to go his way. And then he died. And now we look back and he fits the stereotype of the great artist who dies young, but. He didn't have to die young. That was just the way it worked out. If he had his choice, I mean, he was about to move in with his childhood sweetheart. He's about to start his own magazine. He's about to live all the dreams he'd always had. And and he just died. And it looks like the death was probably from a combination of factors. He might have been a victim of voting fraud. It seems like maybe he was beaten and forced to drink and they stole his clothes and they repeat vote over and over again, change his clothes but he also was in the hospital for days yeah, he was sick even before he left Richmond yeah, he'd been he'd been through a cholera epidemic and there's no firm evidence of what killed him the doctor said it was phrenitis which means inflammation of the brain so encephalitis or meningitis but the hair doesn't really tell us anything. The hair they cut from his head after he died, there's nothing really in that that told us they've tested for heavy metals and looks like the lead levels weren't quite high enough to, to have caused his death. The mercury levels weren't high enough. They've looked at the different isotopes of carbon and nitrogen to determine what sort of diet he had. And, and nothing really told us what killed him. We ruled out a couple things, like the idea that it maybe was long-term exposure to carbon monoxide from the coal oil gas that was in gas lamps mm. back then. But they seem to have ruled that out, or at least they can't find any evidence of it. 
So we don't know exactly what he's suffering from. Could have been something as simple as meningitis. Could have been head trauma. But in these days, 18. That's what I wondered if it was head trauma. Yeah, this was still the age of you know blood perform a real autopsy like we would today. And Chris, you mentioned in in your book that his nurse. Uh, mentioned that he had uh, a brain lesion. Is there any possibility of uh, her actually providing the correct diagnosis when everyone else is looking for a little bit more extravagance? Um, Well, that's one of the theories that maybe he had a brain tumor. So it's still a possibility, and I think Matthew Pearl might have connected the description, one of the descriptions of the moving Poe's body. 26 years after he died, they moved his body from one side of the cemetery to the side of the cemetery next to the sidewalk so everybody could see his monument. It was more of a place of honor when they moved him. And the sext of the cemetery mentioned that after Poe's coffin fell apart, he picked up Poe's skull and he heard something rattling around inside that he thought was just a clump of mud or something, dried up dirt. But Matthew Pearl suggests, well, maybe that thing is a calcified brain tumor. So maybe mm-hmm. that could have been evidence that it was a brain tumor that was causing this. We don't know exactly what was going on with Poe the last, say, six months of his life. He had survived a cholera epidemic. He describes hallucinations and just a terror that something's happened to his mother-in-law. And it must have been really horrifying for him, especially then nowadays, if we're worried something's happened to somebody, we can just call them on our cell phone. Then you're going to have to wait days or weeks to see if they respond to your letter. And supposedly he was thrown into jail for drunkenness. We haven't found the records of that haven't happened. They don't have records on file of that. But the judge apparently let him off because they recognized that he was the famous poet. And he said that I hadn't been drinking a drop. It was about Virginia. So some kind of behavior resulting from his, his death of his wife. He'd never really entirely gotten past her death. And there were Times when Why did he, just... he describe her as childlike? There's one sentence he like describes her as like child, ch- childlike beauty. Um, I think is what he um, described her. It was an interesting way that he wrote about wow. her looks. I think that's one of the visitors to their house described her as childlike. Mm. And one okay. of his friends, Francis Osgood, called him his beautiful and idolized wife. Mm. But they said that she was she was a lot younger than he was. He was 27, he got married, she was 13. So at first she was a child, and he called her sissy like she was his kid sister. And at that point she might have been his little sister to him. In a letter he calls her my little sissy and my darling cousin. And then... Years later, maybe when she grew up, she became more like a wife in the traditional sense, but then 
There's also a possibility since she came down with tuberculosis when she was 19, was invalid shortly after that, that maybe they never had your typical relationship. But another aspect of it is that her mother, Poe's biological father's sister, his Aunt Mariah Clem, lived with them. And he called her Muddy, and his poem, To My Mother, is dedicated to her. So that's another part of the puzzle is about exactly what kind of relationship that he had with his mother-in-law. He thought of her like a mother to him. So would that make his wife his sister? So was it just, was this a relationship that was arranged by his mm. mother-in-law so that she would guarantee she had a place to live? Because she had been widowed and she had nowhere else to go, so she needed a place for her and her daughter to live. And, and Ed could provide And he was that. really close with her. And he's very close with her. Like he even wrote with her, I noticed, about um, another woman aside from her own daughter that he was, like he wrote, uh, uh, Annie, was it Annie that he... You know what I mean? Like to talk to your mother-in-law about another woman that you love is very indicative yeah, really, of quite a close relationship with your mother-in-law. Yeah, he really confided in his mother-in-law about the different women that he loved, and, and he said, oh, I really, really love Annie. We must live next door to Annie. We must be near her. And he was saying some things about, he wrote to her about his struggles with another woman, Elmira Shelton. Mm-hmm. So I don't know how your mother-in-law would feel about you confiding these sort of things in different women that you're in love with. Mm-hmm. And then also, not to leave this out, because I get this about him too, like I think one of the reasons, I, and I've struggled with this as an artist, if I have the ability to do different things, I can write songs and sing and play music and paint and do all these other things, right? But my passion is writing. So I I see that same thing about Poe, where he had the ability to paint and he could do these things, but often multi-talented people, we struggle to be successful because we're spread very thin. And so I just wonder if that was part of it as well. It's like he did artistry and all these other things too, um, along with performing. Did he have a problem with kind of focusing in? But there was a part where he would drop, you know what I mean? Yeah, he said that he was writing about geniuses, and he said they can really do anything. They can pick and choose what things they want to do, and they can be great at anything mm-hmm. they want to be great at. But ultimately, they have to follow the thing that is closest to their heart. And for yeah. him, it was writing. And in school, and at the University of Virginia, some of his classmates thought, well, he's great at painting, he's great at poetry, they weren't sure whether he's going to be a painter or a poet, but it looks like once he decided he set his heart on being a great poet, that's what he wanted to do. So he could have spent more time drawing, but he decided that's the one thing I want to do. It's not somebody like, say, Dante Gabriel Rossetti, who mm. famously was painting and writing poetry at the same time, but he decided, mm, well, right. if I have to choose between one or the other, it's going to be the written word. Mm. Or also I thought about painting coming in verse. Like I know for me the times where I've maybe had these artistic bursts where I did like five paintings, right, in a matter of a couple months, like maybe at that same time I'm writing about something really deep and emotional, and so I have this burst of letting, and then it goes dormant. 
And I mean, never like make another, you know, that too, I thought yeah. about for him, like I wondered was, you know, and we may not know, but it was just kind of amusing that I had, um, if, if he was like that. Cause there's not much yeah. art available of his, right? Only what, maybe under 10 pieces. Yeah, it's not a lot of his drawings that have survived. We don't know where all of his drawings have gone over the years. Apparently, he did a few different drawings of Elmira Shelton, and they were very tiny things, so they could be tucked between the pages of a book somewhere that nobody knows about. Or wow, could, could you imagine, you guys? Somebody. How would you authenticate something like that? Yeah, it'd be very difficult because you it don't would. have enough Poe drawings to compare them to to authenticate them. Wow. So you'd want to yeah. know there's some kind of family history. Hopefully there'd be a letter attached to it that would say exactly what it was. You'd have maybe a letter from Poe and maybe a letter from Elmira Shelton saying, oh, this is the letter that Poe sent me and this is the drawing you did of me. And somewhere out there, there should be a Poe drawing, hopefully, but if it got neglected to say some children inherited something when their great-great-grandmother passed away and they didn't know what to do with it, it could have been shoved away in a trunk in the attic or it could have been thrown in the trash or it could be in a frame on the wall right now and they haven't told anybody about it. Yeah, Chris, that leads... Uh, up to one of you know, the questions I I jotted down it was you, you have an amazing display of you know, personal art, artifacts at, at the museum. Uh, others are uh, from you know, uh, yeah the southern southern literary messenger. But but what's the the one artifact that you'd really like to have at the museum? There's maybe a few of them. One of them definitely the engagement ring that Poe gave to Elmira Shelton shortly before he died. It's I need that. gold ring with his name on the inside. It says Edgar on the inside. Yeah, I'll take that. Really, I'll take that. That's yeah, what I want really for my birthday. Incident. Yeah, yeah. A lot of people yes. have, <laughs> yeah, I think that would be a really nice piece. There's also a, a lock of Virginia Poe's hair that's in a locket. Mm. And it's been really braided. You the know, the way they used to, <laughs> yeah, either piece would be a nice piece to have. Wow. That's so is, is there something that is in someone's house or a collection somewhere that you know is real yeah it, you know, it, it it's authentic and yeah you know, just uh you know the family can't part with it or you know they uh may consider buying it after you know the owners pass away or do, or is there really yeah, most everything is uh, already at at the museum. Well, those pieces so basically, are you waiting those... for someone to die to get your hands on something? 
No, because we well, don't know exactly where it happens to things. Well, if somebody okay. owns a piece, you never know what their heirs are going to do with it. You don't know if right. their heirs mm-hmm. say, I'm just going to donate everything to an institution or if I'm going to mm-hmm. sell on the open market or what institution. They could say, well, my father or mother wanted me to donate these things to the Poe Museum, but I think I should give them to Harvard instead. Mm. You never quite know. Or they could, or the grandchildren or the children could say, hey, why don't we see if we can take this to auction? So there's no real way of knowing what the future will hold. Wow, but good question. How do you decide what to spend on an, an artifact? Uh, pardon? I didn't catch the last part. Well, I love Mark's question. It, like, set my mind on a spin. Like, how do you decide what you want for your museum and what, oh, you know. I mean, do you want everything, or are there, like, some things that you would necessarily turn away? I think if there was something really great, we wouldn't turn it away. But if it's something... For instance, someone said they had Virginia Post piano, and I thought, this is perfect. You know, this would be great because there's all these accounts of Poe playing his flute and Virginia playing her piano, and the guy was going to donate to us. And a piano's kind of a big piece. Even the piano fortes they had back then were still kind of big pieces that take up some room. They're a little bit smaller, mm-hmm. didn't have quite as many keys as today's do, but. You have to decide where am I going to put this, where I'm going to store it. Is there a mm-hmm. safe way to display this, what kind of condition it's in. So there are thoughts that have to go through your mind before you can accept something like that. But, it, but fortunately, that turned out to be a piano that was made well after Poe's death, so we knew it couldn't have been Virginia's piano. But say if somebody were to donate us a 30-foot-tall bronze statue of Poe, you know, I'd I'd really like it for a really great statue, but then we'd have to decide, well, is it something we can keep? Where are we going to put a giant statue of Poe? It's 30 feet tall. Wouldn't it be hovering over the museum? (laughs) Why, right by the front door. (laughs) Yeah, there you go. Welcome. (laughs) But then if it's something small like a Poe letter, of course we can... They have plenty of room for a letter or a manuscript or right, things like that. writing. Yeah, it would seem like writing would be the most valuable to be able to get your hands on, you know, writing. Well, if, we did get, if, yet. We get, if we got Virginia's piano, that would be nice to have, or if it mm. even still exists. Because you don't right. know what happens to things over the years. Sometimes they disappear, and sometimes there's pieces that people wrote us letters back in the 1930s during the Great Depression and said, oh, I've got this great Poe artifact and a museum for whatever reason, because it was the Great Depression, couldn't make an offer on it or couldn't accept it at that time. Mm-hmm. Then, you know, 80 years later, these things have come back on the market or they showed up again. So hopefully some of these things are still out there. And you never know what has stayed in the family that's, just never been made available to the public before. And there's even there's even recently discoveries of Poe's letters that have been sitting in the Library of Congress that nobody knew about, or things have been in family wow. collection that nobody knew about. You'll just have to dig a little bit deeper sometimes and 
there's maybe about 2000 or 2002 they found some opposed letters in an old desk that had been passed down to the family. A young writer had written Poe asking for some writing advice. And then he put the letters in the desk and it went through the children, the grandchildren, the great-grandchildren. I guess nobody thought to look inside that drawer because they would have found out that these letters tucked away in the back of this drawer are worth more than the desk, probably worth more than their house. So if you have any old hey, desk, uh, probably look inside of them. Uh, Chris, we... Uh, we're getting low on time. I, I, I need to read my uh, birthday poem to uh, Benny, and, oh, and we could do the websites and uh, ca- call it an e- evening as we get to the midnight hour. But, uh, yeah, This is entitled To Blank, Poe Mashup for Her Birthday. Once upon a midnight dreary, as I pondered weak and weary, instead of the phone ringing, suddenly there came a Facebook dinging, only Venny and no one more. I need to give you a quick call, a world of merriment, no time to stall. Here I opened wide the door, sunshine there and nothing more. Molten golden tales, a crystalline delight, and voices of a survivor from the queendom by the sounding sea. Till the brazen bell struck three, it was a healing tintinabulation for a stronger Venny nation. Oh my God! I don't even know what to say. Gosh, that's amazing! Wow! Thank you. Okay, well, uh, you guys can plug your. Uh, you know, just, just ha- happy birthday, Venny. Oh, oh my God! Thank you. So yeah, I suggest nice. you say thank you and good night because we're right down to the end here. <laughs> Oh, th- th- thanks, Chris and Venny. Uh, we'll have to do this again. Uh, th- I'm sure the audience has you know, really uh, got a Plus lot Chris out of it. Real quick, please. I have poemuseum.org and chrissimmer.com. Okay. Right, okay, and Venny? Vennycoaches.com, poemuseum.org. You'll find us on Google. Thank you guys so much. I adore you both, three, all of you. Miss Barbara, thank you. Our pleasure. It was great, too. Okay, say goodnight, Mark. It's all over. (laughs) Good night. night, See you next week.